All right, last week I spoke about family, uh, the week before last I spoke about family and um, what that entails and who we are and what, that, what, what we're attempting to achieve. And then last week I spoke about faith. And this week I'm going to continue and, and continue on in Hebrews and speak about fortitude. Now, did I spend a lot of time to try and make that to have an F so that I could have three? Yes. Yes, I did. And I finally found a word that fit. And the one time Kat's not here, I actually have a title for my message this morning. So, But I wanted, to, I wanted to continue on in Hebrews and just continue to challenge this position of faith that we have and this, this holding that we're, we're moving on and understanding as a people that God has us regardless of, of where we are and where we're going. The word fortitude means strength of mind that allows one to endure pain or adversity with courage. Strength, force, power to attack or resist attack, and a mental power of endurance, patient courage under affliction, privation or temptation, firmness in confronting danger, hardships or suffering. Now, everyone in this room will have at one point in their life been the victim of suffering at some point, right? All of us have a story where we can say, times were tough, that thing was hard, that was difficult. And John shared a, a podcast with me during the week that was absolutely powerful. It was a, a gentleman that I can't remember his name, John. Johan Hari. And he interviewed a, a Holocaust survivor, an old lady who survived Auschwitz, one of the worst um, prison camps. And she said something that, that rocked me. She said, there's no hierarchy in trauma. There is no hierarchy in trauma. And what she was meaning that her hardship was the hardest because it was hers. And she is now a, a psychologist, a, a, a well-renowned psychologist, and she sat with many people. And as I was listening to this podcast, I was thinking to myself, how in the world could you sit before this lady and complain about your problem, whatever it be, your wife left you, you lost your job, whatever it is, and have her sit across from you and empathize with you when she went through the ordeal of what she went through. And she touches on some of the, the atrocities that she faced and some of the things that she realized in the camp. But I, I was wrestled when she said that there's no hierarchy in trauma because what she was saying was your problem to you was as big as a prison camp to me. And what I realized was, was that when you sit with people and hear their problems, everything in our world becomes ours and it becomes the biggest thing in front of us. And during prayer this morning, I saw a picture of a table and it was, I would presume me on one end and, and Jesus on the other. And there was all these things that were in front of us between my, my vision. And I saw a hand sweep down and, and wipe the things away to clear my view to Christ. And what I realized was that in this world that we live in today and in this, this challenging place that we're in, there are so many things that come in between us and Christ. All you have to do is turn on your Facebook or your news to realize that there are a multitude of things and so many different views and opinions and visions and understandings of, of good things and bad things. And we can highlight all these different things. But at the end of the day, the thing that matters most is Christ. And what this lady was explaining, and she was a, a Christian lady and explained that her faith pulled her through in that time, was that your problem is big, but not to Christ. 
but it, it is one of those things on the table that gets in the way of our position unto Christ. That when we make our world the biggest thing before us, we have created ourselves an idol. There's a, a great song by Jimmy Needham, and it's called Clear the Stage. And the, the chorus, the lyric of the chorus is, anything I put before my God is an idol. And as I was sitting there this morning just praying and, and, and just worshipping I heard God say everything, including our challenges, our problems, can become an idol. And Mike Eltringham, an apostle to this house who passed away a a few years ago, he used to say something which I'm pretty sure he stole from somebody else, but I heard it from him, so he will get the credit from me. But he said, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out of it? Orange juice, right? If you squeeze an orange and apple juice comes out of it, there's an issue. It's not an orange anymore, it's an apple. And in that same analogy for us as people, when we get squeezed, when we get pushed into a corner, when we get put under pressure, what comes out of us is really what's inside of us. Quick golf analogy, because what would a sermon be without a golf analogy? You see this on the golf course in all kinds. But I also saw it the other week at the, at the gym that I go to, and we've been doing a Saturday morning, the trainers have been taking us to the park. And they took a team of us to the park to play football, touch football, with a range of different skilled people, some who have never played touch football in their life, and some that obviously have played before. And all the different teams, we have three different teams who wear different colours. It was the most intense game of touch touch football I've ever played in my life. It was, in the end, (laughs) one guy got sent off and went home very upset. And I was thinking to myself, man, I don't even know if we're keeping score out here. I don't even know if there is a winner and a loser. But to him, he became so enraged, so angry. And the people sitting around going, bro, just calm down. It's a game of such football where we're all going to win at the end because we're all out here running at 6 o'clock in the morning like lunatics. But the point was that when he was squeezed, something terrible came out of him. And as followers of Christ, as image bearers of Jesus, it's our duty to say, Lord, Please search my heart, like David said, search my heart and find the things that are inside of me that aren't you. Because when I get squeezed, I want people to still see Jesus. When I get put under pressure, I want people to still see Jesus. When I'm on the phone to a a telemarketer who I'm trying to get something sorted, I want people to still see Jesus. So what I put inside of me comes by the way I spend time and get to know the person of whom I'm sitting with. Does that make sense? In your trouble... In your pain, in your suffering, I want to ask you, what is coming out of you? And it's the same in our triumph, right? It's the same as when something amazing happens, where the glory goes. Something amazing takes place, where my my praise and my worship goes. Did I manage to make that happen or did God allow and put things in place to, to bring me to that place? If you've got a Bible, open to Hebrews 12 for me. Because I want to read through Hebrews 12. Verse 3, starting from verse 3. Because if you remember last week, I finished the top of the top of Hebrews 12, really is the bottom of Hebrews 11. But Hebrews 12, verse 3 says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And, you have, for, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? We have not yet reached a place of pain and suffering so great that, that Christ hasn't reached. The cross is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing when we begin to understand the depth and width of what Jesus is actually saying. But what he's saying in that place is, I endured something so great to ensure that I could call you sons and daughters. That's the spirit of sonship, the adoption to to come from orphans into sons and daughters. That Christ said, I have gone and endured the absolute pinnacle. Do you know why they, they, they killed people on crosses? Because it's the most brutal way to die. Still to this day, it's the most brutal way to die because you, beside the beating, by the time you hang on that cross, they were hoping that it would take days, eventually your organs begin to give out and you slowly suffocate. The Romans used it of all the methods they had, of which there were some brutal ones, I won't go into them. (laughs) But the reality is, is this was the most brutal. This was the most painful. It was shame inflicted because everyone could see you, that you were one of the awful ones to be killed. It was long. It was painful. It was tiresome. And Jesus says, your suffering, albeit extreme, has not been what I did that day for you to become my son and and I thought to myself as I, as I listened to that, that's a, a brutal thing to say, but what Jesus is trying to explain is I know where you're at. I know who you are and I know the pain you face. You don't know, Lord. You don't know what I'm standing in. Yes, I do because I stood in it. I held it. I bore it. I took it. I walked in it so that I could make you my son or my daughter. Continuing on from verse 5 and And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son from whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For which son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we must have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more subject to the father of spirits and and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The first thing I I want to address and make very clear is that I do not believe, nor do I think the author of Hebrews here is saying that pain and affliction is caused by God for us to be disciplined. I don't believe that. I don't think we see that scripturally. But there is clearly God saying, as a father, I will discipline you, my children. That's what makes us legitimate children. As a parent of which I'm not, but I have observed many 
parents. If you do not discipline your child, they grow up in a way where everything is unruly and all of their life seems to never ever work out according to plan. If I own a house and I put out the front a, a fence that fences between my yard and the road, am I a good father or a bad father? Not a hard question. <laughs> I'm a good father, thank you. I'm a good father, right? Because I've said to my children, beyond this fence line is pain and suffering. Beyond this fence line is potential death. It might not always be potential death. They might go out into the road and come back in safely. But there is potential for harm past the gate. So as a good father, I put a boundary around my fence. Now, if I see my child open the latch in the gate and walk through the gate, what has to happen? I have to discipline my son or my daughter to say, hey, I told you why the fence is there. Come back inside. I need to continually teach you a lesson until you understand why I've put that in place. God operates exactly the same for us. There's things in our life that he has put a fence around because you can't see it, but it's no good for you. So the Lord says, don't go there. But us, as unruly teenagers as we are, we like to push the boundaries. We like to engage with God like we know best, like our decisions are best, and we press the boundaries. And in that moment, God says, if I do not discipline you, you will continue to go into that place of pain and suffering. And see, we get a bit awkward with the word discipline in the charismatic church because we sing songs like God's a good, good father, but we misunderstand and interpret the fact that this makes him a good father. At times we need a smack on the hand, we need a correction, a, a moving forward of. And I wonder for some of us how many times we have, God has given us a promise, like a prophetic word or something like that. He's called forth a promise for us and then we have stepped poorly and he said, I have to prolong that word. I have to prolong those things until my boy, my daughter, until you understand where it is I'm actually calling you. God is treating us in a position where he wants us to grow up. He wants us to become the powerful church and holy people in which we read about. In order for us to do that, we have to grow up. And in order for us to grow up, God has to lead and guide us. So there are many things that we could go and speak through many scenarios as as christians we want a scenario so if this happens in my life is that god's discipline or is that the enemy of the world both end (laughs) in each situation we have to address god what's taking place here because there's realities and consequences for our actions in the life that we lead we tell our kids that there's a consequence i was at the shops we're at the shops yesterday and i heard a mum say to her her son if you touch that again you lose your, um, what's the Nintendo Game Boy that you've got? You lose your Switch for a day. And then I was walking past, she said, you touch it, you lose it for a week. I was like, this is fantastic. She's going to lose that Switch. Because he was, she was trying to teach the child, there's a consequence for you not listening to me. If we operate like that in our worldly way, of course God is teaching and guiding us. And we have to start to understand. I want to show you, the author of Hebrews uses a really cool example to explain this. Hebrews 12, chapter 15, it continues on. It says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The first part of this says that there's no root of bitterness. Oftentimes in our life, when we do something, when we behave in a particular manner, it comes from a place in our past whether it be positive or negative, right? Whether it be a a trauma or it be something that's taken place in our life, we respond in a particular manner because of something that's taken place before. And what we do is we perpetuate or we continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. And if we can't be mature enough, what happens is, is we feel justified in our response to that. So if I have had a poor friendship and my friends abandoned me at a, at a time of need. When I come into a new friendship like with Sean, I'm always defensive and I never ever let him in because I'm acting from that place of where I was hurt and pained, right? That's a root of bitterness. We see this all the time in relationships, especially in marriages in the, in the early um, years of a marriage. You start to see the roots of bitterness that have been in place from somebody's childhood or from somebody's past life. Now, these aren't things that we have to dwell on, but if we don't recognize that we're there, we can't break them and remove them. The other place we're seeing this, I think, in a massive way is with people in the church saying, I'm done with church. That no longer works for me. What's happened there, almost every time without fail, there's been a pain and a hurt that's rooted deep in their heart and they refuse to have to deal with it. Somebody else has to deal with it. I was in a conversation with someone a few weeks ago and I knew that there was unforgiveness in their heart and I just poked just a little bit to say, hey, is there unforgiveness there? And they got so angry and so protected, they said, I don't have to forgive that person. They have to come for me. Now, in that, I said, hey, you realize that that is a cancer that's hurting you, not that other person. No, nope. no, it's not. Okay, just leave it. Because what's happened there is there's a root of bitterness, like the author of Hebrews is saying, is that will you will continue to live from that place. The way you respond, the way you act in certain conversations will continue to come from that place that you haven't dealt with back there. You ever been in a conversation with somebody where sort of everyone's chatting, it's all fine, and then all of a sudden someone says something and a person just snaps. They go defensive, they turn off. What's happening is that this root of bitterness that's being spoken is springing up and it's causing them to act a certain way. But the challenge is, is that we want to address everybody else's heart issue and never ever address our own. That's why David says, like I, I pray this morning, Lord, search my heart. Find the things in me that aren't of you. What's he talking about? He's talking about roots of bitterness that are stopping him from letting out the Spirit of God and revealing the kingdom of heaven from his own heart. I said earlier, when you get squeezed, what comes out? In most cases, if there's a deep root of bitterness, you bet your bottom dollar that bitterness is going to come out when you get squeezed. If you've not dealt with something, and some, the, the question will always be, okay, I'm ready to deal with it. How do I deal with it? Again, there's so many different ways. There's so many different things. That's a, a challenge you outwalk. You don't w- wake up one day and say, I want to get rid of it. But we have to start and say, Lord, where do I start? How do I begin to outwork this pain? I realize it's in me now. I realize that that is something that I'm responding with that I don't want to. What do I do, Lord, to see your kingdom come, not my own twisted kingdom? Does that make sense? 
He uses an example, Esau. If, you, if you've got a Bible and you're flipping through, go to Genesis 25 for me. Genesis 25, verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And, he, and Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Adam. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. There's a small portion of scripture that we see here that that is so challenging to us, especially in the West. That word... Red stew, some of your versions will say stew, some of them will say just red. The word there is, and the reason that, that the author, the reason that Moses calls him Adom, is that Adom means red. So that, that verse there in, in the Hebrew is, let me eat some of that hot Adam, right? Hot meaning the and Adam meaning red. Give me some of that red. And what they understood was that hot food was soothing to the body and soothing to the soul. That he's not just hungry here. He would have been out looking for animals, hunting for weeks on end. And he comes in and he's faint and without any power or energy, right? He feels like, I need some medicine. And what they would see was a stew was, was like a, a blood sauce. That's why I call it red, right? It was a healing, um, a healing meal that allowed them to be replenished. So he comes in from, healing, in from, from hunting for, for what would have been weeks or, or we don't know how long it was, but he's obviously exhausted with nothing left in the tank. He comes in through the door and he sees this life source, this cooking, healing, nurturing pot on a delicious stove. And he says, give me some of that red stuff. Give me some of that healing agent. Give me some of that hot adam, that that." incredible food i'm hungry and jacob as cunning as he is he says you can have a you can have a bowl just give me everything give me everything and in that moment when we say well no i'm i'm really strong in my faith i'm i'm i'm, I'm not going to drop the ball i i know i'm not going to stuff up i know i'm not going to do the wrong thing because i love jesus but in that moment when you come through the door and you are hungry when you are empty, when there's nothing left, when there's no life source, and you look at that pot and you say, give me some of that red stuff. Give me some of that hot Adam. Because I want the food. I want the life source. Yeah, but don't you love Jesus, man? I do. I do. But I'm, I'm empty. What good is all that to me if I can't just get through this moment? What good is all that to me if I don't have a job? What good is all that for me if, if, if my partner's run off? What good is all that to me if, if, if? What good is all that to me if my friend has passed away? Or what good is all that to me if whatever it is, in the moment, we have a challenging decision to make. Will God pull us through or will we push for the red stuff, for the stew? And we know the story, right? Jacob says, give me your birthright. He says, take it. Give me a pot of the stew. You know the, the interesting thing? You ever been so hungry that you just eat a meal and then like two minutes after you just feel 
awful. You're like, ugh, especially if you've eaten KFC ever in your life. Everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? You, you get into that KFC line, give me some of that red stuff. Give me some of that chicken. Not two minutes later, you are contemplating your whole life's thoughts and journey. What have I done? There's lies. Edith and Dame, I want to see some repentance. It's not. It's the greasy, make you feel sick for three days nonsense. But when you're in the line, when you're in the line, it's the goods. You are hungry. Give it to me. And we all know the story, right? Jacob pretends, he sends Esau out to get his father a, a, a deer and then he puts fur on his, on his arms, his leg, and he deceives his brother, right? But he didn't take it from Esau. Remember that. He didn't take it from Esau. Esau gave it to him. Esau gave it to him. And the question that I think the author of Hebrews is asking here is what are you trading for that quick bowl of red stuff? What are you saying, Lord, I can't even think about it. I just need that. I just need that girl. I just need that guy. I just need that job. I just need that one thing. I just need that. And then, Lord, I'll, re, I'll rework myself out and I'll come back on fire for you. Just one more. Just that one thing. You see, the challenge in all of this is that we can prepare ourselves we can prepare ourselves as best we can that we are the most faithful. I am, Lord. I, I know that in that, that hard time, I won't make the wrong decision. But when that time comes, almost always, it sees us over. It outdoes us. And I love that Moses, in the verse, in Genesis, in brackets, he says, therefore, his name was called Adam or Red. So they no longer referred to Esau as Esau. They referred to him as Red, the big clunky guy who gave away his birthright for a bowl of beans. And I often look at myself and go, Lord, how many times have I given away what you had for me in that moment for a bowl of beans? How many times, Lord, have I missed what you were asking me to do because there was something so much shinier. There was something so much more delicious. There was something that I thought was going to fill me up with more life source. Time and time and time again, we make this decision. And the challenge for us, especially in the contemporary charismatic church is, but brother, don't get locked up by works. Yeah, but we've got to find out where is God actually speaking to us? Where is he actually asking us not to do that? Where is he actually saying, don't go out the fence. You're going to get run over. Don't do that, my, my son, my daughter. It's going to hurt you. And then if you do do it, I have to discipline you because I know you're a goose and you're going to do it again. That's what God is saying to us as, as disciples of him. That word disciple means to be a student. It means we're going to get it wrong. But it means that the, the great teacher is going to correct us and lead us back into the right path. But we have to decide, do we want that correction or are we going to run for it, from it? I think right now in, in the contemporary Western church, the church is in a place of discipline. We're in a place of correction. God is calling his church to arise, but he's saying, I need you to change who, you, who you've been from the last because it's not been what I called you to. I think that's a bold statement, but I've, I've prayed and asked and said, Lord, what is, why aren't we seeing the things that have been promised? This city has been promised 
an absolute outpouring of God time and time and time. There are so many prophecies over the Gold Coast and the nations of Australia. Yet it's prolonged and it's prolonged and it's prolonged. And I think that what God is doing is he's saying, I'm waiting for my church to arise. I'm waiting for you as a people to come before I'll pour out what needs to be poured out, before I have what you have. And that, that action is for us, for you and I. To become holy and inspired. The end of that verse in Hebrews, it says, for you know that afterward when he desires, uh, sorry, for the, for the end of, of 14, it says to make our path straight for our feet, that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, and that we would strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. If we can lay down the roots of bitterness in our heart, if we can recognize when we are being tempted with a bowl of beans over our incredible birthright, when the small things that we think are big for us are being left aside so that we can step into what God actually has for us day in and day out. If we can leave aside the, well, what about me, Lord? If we can put all of that aside, there is a glory that God's going to reveal. How do we know that? Because the author says it in, in Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. He finishes with this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival, gather, uh, in festival gathering and to assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them of earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God is promising us when we will operate in who he is, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He is offering to us a kingdom of, of all-consuming fire that will burn everything else in its path. He is offering for us a position and a place where he is and operates as the great king. When we choose to stand in him and not take the beans, but to take what he has offered for us as our inheritance, he says, my kingdom is greater than anything else you can understand. But we have to decide, is this really real? God, is this real? Is your scripture and what you've said to us the reality 
of who we are and what we're living in. That testimony that Sven shared this morning, I have to go, Jesus is here. I hear that and I think that is phenomenal. Absolutely breathtaking. But I also could hear the other side of it where people go, it's just a dying lady's take. We have to decide, everyone individually, how real God are you and how real is this kingdom you speak of? Is this really, really what's taking place in our midst? God, is this, are you who you say you are? When we come to that place and we decide, Lord, I want to be in this 100%, and it's, it's your faith, not mine. You can't do it through me. You have to do it for your own sake to decide, am I reading this book because someone has told me I have to? Or am I trying with all that I am to eagerly find out who this king is? Am I going to church on a Sunday morning because it makes me feel good inside? Or do I really, really believe, Lord, that you are who you said you are? And this is a place where I can gather and worship you. This is a challenge you have to work for yourself. Because if that's true, and the Bible is who, who and, and sorry, the Bible explains who God says that He is, and you believe that with all that you are, then every day of our life we have a decision to make to continually take His kingdom and not the bowl of beans. Does that make sense? There is a time coming for this nation and this and the church where it was it is going to get harder to be a Christian. It is going to get more difficult to openly explain your faith. How do we know that? Because we're already seeing it in other areas of the world, other areas of, of the globe are struggling. I have friends in India right now who have been attacked for their faith, beaten within an inch of their life. Church leaders who have gathered and because they're declaring Jesus is the king are in, in threat of losing their life. The only reason that they can do that is because they believe without a shadow of a doubt that God is who he says he is, that the kingdom is worth fighting for. If they didn't really believe that, if it was a, uh, I, think it's, I think it is, they wouldn't go to the length they go to, to, to forward the kingdom. The challenge we have that I think the author of Hebrews is saying, in our faith, will we be resilient and will we hold on in our faith? Will we stand and say, Lord, regardless of what it takes, the discipline, the pain, the suffering, the hard times, the low times, the, the up times, the, the good times, Lord, whatever it takes, we will continue to do as you asked us to do, to love you, to love others, to make disciples and to advance the kingdom. We will continue to live in that place, regardless of what it looks like. Does that make sense? Why don't we stand? Let's pray. I want to just finish with this before I pray. If you, if you are, this might sound really odd, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you, if you are questioning your faith, I want to encourage you to continue to question. I want to encourage you to ask those questions. I want to encourage you to open the Bible and say, God, show me. I want to encourage you to ask your friends, hey, I don't understand this. 
How can God be God if this is there? If you've read the Bible your whole life and you still have questions, I want to I encourage you to ask them. God doesn't need us to defend him. He will defend himself. Don't let those questions, don't let a position be, well, I'm not really sure anymore. That's a good thing. Why? Because you're going to keep searching him out. And the Bible says that when you knock on the door, it will be answered. The point is we have to knock. We have to actually engage God to say, Lord, I'm lost in this at the moment. I don't know what your kingdom looks like. I don't know what you're calling me to. I don't know what this is all supposed to be. I don't know anymore why I continue to go to church. I don't know why we continue to pray. They are all good questions to ask. Continue to ask them. Find somebody that you trust and know who may have somewhat of an answer and begin a discussion. Pray and ask God to reveal These are healthy things. Why? Because it takes us deeper. So Father, we come right now before you. And Lord, I pray that you would begin to enlighten to us your kingdom and your glory realm. God, I, I pray that the things that have never made sense, Lord, would begin to make sense. Father, I pray that the church, your true church in this city and in this nation, God, will begin to understand you like they have never before. God, that we would be a people who understands the power and the width of the cross. God, I pray that it would be so much bigger to us than a a golden ticket to heaven. But Lord, we would begin to understand just what you went through and why you did that. What we can begin to take upon ourselves and live out of right here and now. God, I pray not just for this house, but for all the houses in this city and this nation, Lord, that when we gather together, it wouldn't just be a club, Father, but it would be the powerful merging together of your kingdom realm. God, I pray that as Christians, we would not just hold that label as something that we wear on our T-shirts or around our necks, God. But that when we come into trial and trouble, when we come into mountaintops and and succession, Father, that there would be on our lips glorification and worthy uh, uh, praises of you. God, I pray that being a Christian would begin to mean something deeper in our lives. God, that we would proclaim that we are followers of Christ disciples of the Most High. God, I pray, Lord, that for all of us in this room, we would be met with a realization of you like never before. God, that there would be, in these weeks to come, that there would be signs and revelations of you and your kingdom like never before, God. I just, I just pray that out over us as a people right now, that God, in these coming weeks, there would be revelation of you, Jesus, of your unseen kingdom realm being revealed to us as a people, that God, there would be an increase of faith. Father, there would be an increase of faith for us to see you more and to know you more. God, I pray for opportunities in our workplaces, in our spheres of influence, Lord, that we would have the opportunity to not just put Christian on our name title, but to actually act out the life of of a Christian, a follower of Christ. God, I pray for opportunities 
And Lord, if we miss those opportunities, Father, we ask for a healthy discipline of you. God, to reveal to us, to lead us and guide us back into your path, back into your plan. God, give us the opportunity to be sons in your house to those who do not know what it's like to be a son or a daughter. God, we love you. Jesus, we honor you. We glorify your name. We declare your kingship in this house. We declare your kingship in this city and we declare your kingship in this nation. You are the king in whom we serve and worship. Glory are you, O God. Jesus, in your beautiful name, we as your people said, Amen. Thank you.